This show is brought to you in part by the University of Advancing Technology. UAT is a unique technology-infused private college that was founded by a geek for other geeks. Our mission is to educate students in the fields of advancing technology to become innovators of the future. UAT's campus culture is devoted to continually nurturing a thriving geek community where everyone's personal lives and professional aspirations revolve around technology. The beginning of the 21st century is an exciting time to be in the technology community. Current subjects of ongoing research and scholarship at UAT include robotics and embedded systems, artificial life programming, information and network security, game development, and other areas of advanced technology. Check them out on the web at www.uat.edu. Shoutcast streaming provided by Versus the World Productions, www.vtwproductions.com. Hi, folks. This is the Emperor. I'm here to remind you to listen to the Emperor's Court every Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern right here at vtwproductions.com. That's the Emperor's Court, your three-hour break from Internet porn. Welcome to this special edition of Alpha Geek Interviews, my Alpha Geek for this episode is author John Scalzi. Hello, and welcome to Alpha Geek Interviews. Hello, it's good to be here. Good to have you. Welcome to Phoenix and Phoenix Comic Con. How is your stay going? It's going great, actually. This is my second year here at uh, Phoenix Comic Con, and uh, the first time I came, it was very cool. I usually go to much smaller conventions, about a 1,000 or so. We used to be that. Right, right, exactly. This is what I've been told, and now it's like... Good gracious, it's very large. But uh, last year, people treated me very well. I had a wonderful time. They said, well, you should come back next year. And I said, maybe I will. And as it worked out, uh, this is the very last stop on my book tour. So it dovetailed in very, very nicely. And that's why I'm here. And it's great to be back. Now, I'll get back to what I was just about to ask you about, because I, I can't give up a segue like that. What book are you promoting exactly? Well, I'm glad that you asked. The book I'm promoting is called Fuzzy Nation. It's a reboot of the 1961 science fiction classic Little Fuzzy by H. Beam Piper. And uh, it's been doing very well, I'm happy to say. We released it on May 10th, which is also my birthday. And I know, Aww. I know, it's nice. And uh, that's we started the book tour then. Uh, on the, it's been a 12-city tour, and uh, it's the book landed on the New York Times bestseller list, which makes me very happy. It's good to see that. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to see that people are responding to the book in a very positive fashion. And like I said, going all across the country, you know, telling people about the book and, uh, you know, signing books and having a good time. So give us the convention dwellers quick summary of why we desperately need to have this book. Oh, well, you need to have this book because it actually speaks to a lot of issues that are going on in people's heads today. Corporate responsibility, ecology, and whether cute and fuzzy things can actually be sentient or not, which is always a very important question. That's a bit of a uh, moral uh, Moral, moral quandary, there. yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing about it is, like I said, is that it's a reboot of a, of a 1961 novel and so that's also something that's sort of unusual. You see reboots of television shows. You see reboots of movies. This is a, a topic of much conversation on our network. Do we really need another reboot of, and then insert recently rebooted thing here, and the right. list keeps getting longer. Right, exactly. You don't usually see that yes. in the work of literature. Well, and there's a reason for that. Most of the things that are uh, being rebooted are actually owned by corporations, whereas books tend to be, the copyright tends to be owned by uh, the individuals and the individuals generally don't uh, reboot their own stuff and they generally don't have other people to reboot them for them. 
uh, Little Fuzzy was a little bit different because it was in the public domain. Ah. So it was one thing that could be approached that way. The other thing we did is after we were done writing it, we went to the uh, Piper Estate, which happens to be owned by Penguin, and said, look, we've done this. If you don't like it, then we will be happy not to... To ever show it the light of day. Right. I mean, because I wrote it basically for myself just as an intellectual exercise to see what it would be like to take a book that had been written previously, you know... It's a great book. Little Fuzzy is a great book. And it has, like I said, touches on a lot of things that concern us today, like ecology and relating to corporate responsibility. But it's also very much a, a book of its time, you know, of the of the early 60s. It's like Mad Men, you know, in that, in that sort of way. There's a sensibility of now we're having cocktail hour and everybody's smoking. And, and, and the children and the women should run along because men are talking. Right, exactly, that sort of thing. And, and that's not how we roll here in 2011. So it was Aww. kind of... I, you welcome. And I brought the scotch. I know. Welcome to the 21st century, sir. We, we have many wonders here. But the thing is, is so, you know, so I looked at it. If, if you could take the same story arc, the same sort of thing, and bring it up to a modern sensibility, what would it be like? And so it was very much of an intellectual exercise with me. I didn't intend to sell it until my agent said, I think I can sell this. And I'm like, at which point I was like, then go sell this. That's a recurring theme I've been seeing in a lot of the panels here and the speakers is uh, when your agent tells you, that you should try to publish something or should do a piece of work, mm -hmm. you should trust them. They're, that's why you pay them. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, he's he's very good with you know the commercial sensibility, and he's like, this was this works. All we have to do is do this, and it, the this in this case was getting the Piper State to sign off. I don't know that we necessarily re need reboots of books as well as movies or or TV. But one of the things that's attractive about it, obviously, is. It's something that people already know. It's something that people already have the buy-in for. And if you're a corporation, of course, that makes sense because then you don't have to go hunt for the audience. The audience is already there. Yeah. I did it mostly because, in this case, H. Beam Piper, H. Beam Piper had, is beginning to fade a little bit into the background for science fiction readers. There's a schism. People over the age of 40 know who he is and have read his books. People under the age of 40, not so much. Um, and I think that it really, would be really interesting if as part of the side effect of putting this book out, people go and reread Piper. And this is something that has actually happened. When I announced the book, I said, it's going to be a reboot of this book, which, which, by, the way, go read. which by the way is available at Gutenberg.org because it's in the public domain. And so I've, I know for a fact that I've, I've literally brought thousands of new readers to H. Beam Piper. And you know what? I feel good about that. So that was a reason to do a reboot because in addition to sort of playing with a story that I liked, bringing it into a, a modern age, but also bringing attention to what is, who is becoming, uh, as time goes on, a bit of a neglected master of the form. Um, and that's a good thing. Well, do you feel and something we've observed is the more current crop of readers could be more called speculative fiction because it's fantasy, sci-fi, mishmash to a much greater extent where there's less of a, a hard division of here is hard science fiction. Right. Over here is swords and sorcery. Right. And there's less of that so that to get someone to get buy and go and read this hard sci-fi from the past, it's awesome. Right. Nah, it's not really my thing from the current generation. Do you get that vibe off of new readers or is there still a clear delineation of reader type? Well, I do think that there, there are people who like their science fiction as their science fiction and they don't want to get their fantasy in their science fiction. Uh, and the opposite as well. People who are like, oh, I only read fantasy. I don't really usually read science fiction. But I think there are a lot of people who don't mind having a messy middle. You know what I mean? You read someone like China Mieville, right? China Mieville's Perdido Street Station or the, you know, Baslag books. Uh, there's just, are they science fiction? Are they fantasy? They're probably somewhere in the middle of them. That They eventually had to just build a, 
new phrase for him, the new weird to describe him. And basically what it means is that they're not really paying that much attention to you know, genre conventions. And I think that's fine. I mean, I think there are some people who always have to have their, you know, all the food on their plate separated, right? Yeah. And if that's the way that you eat, then eat that way. There's going to be enough for you there. But if you like something in the middle, that's fine too. My stuff tends to be straight ahead science fiction. Although I did write The God Engines, which was a book that is explicitly fantasy, but takes on science fiction tropes because they are spaceships and they're powered by angry enslaved gods. Mm -hmm. It's clearly fantasy, but it's also trafficking and we're going through space. Yeah, I would call that that messy middle. The messy middle, and that's perfectly fine with me. Yeah, I'm seeing this, the same kind of trend. The do, Have you had a chance to take in the new Thor movie? I have not seen it yet, although I have to see it for my other gig, which is the uh, science fiction movie column that I do for filmcritic.org. When you do, you'll see there's, I wouldn't call it a retooling, but there's definitely a much more heavy-handed implication that the Asgardians are merely extremely advanced aliens who have been posing as gods. Right. Which was never really in the source material. Absolutely. Thor has always been the god of thunder. Right, right, right. And they've re kind of rejiggered it and said, nah, they're just aliens. Yeah, sometimes you have to think, is that the best thing to do? I mean, it's like when... It seemed to work. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I will be the judge of that. Yes, thing. you will indeed. But when, uh, like when Lucas like took the force and he retconned it Speak with the midi chlorians. Speak the evil one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're like, really? You had to do that? You didn't have to do that. People would, people were ready to you just let the force be the force. But no, you tried to give it a rational basis and now it's, and now it's crap. And that's when they lost me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm one of their most ardent, woohoo, yay, Star Wars, and you, you managed to kill that in me. Good job, George. Yeah. No, no, we could be bitter for like long no. time but we'll just That's let that one done to death yes by exactly. me alone so, <laughs> yes, we know of what we speak so fuzzy nation is your most uh i've already just gone off the rails it's your most recent uh publication yep. what do you have in the pipeline for the near future well i have a new book which i finished in March and which has been accepted by Tor so it'll come out in 2012 we're still figuring out what the title of it is going to be and it's kind of it's kind of hard to explain without actually giving it away so the thing I've been telling people is trust me it's good uh, but the, the the basic idea of it is um, it takes a trope that people are very used to uh, and plays with it a lot and kind of has a lot of fun with it and goes very meta with it as well and that was a lot of fun to write simply because one of the things I like to do with my science fiction is take stuff that people already are, are already aware of, you know, that they already have rolling around in their head and saying, why don't we look at this at a, at a brand new perspective? Something that's solidly in pop culture. And solidly say, in pop but culture. But have you thought of it this way? Right, exactly. And it's, it's, it's fun to do that because in one sort of sense, uh, you get something that everybody is comfortable with and so you, you, don't have to, you don't have to do a hard sell on the idea. But at the same time, if you take that one idea and you go, I know you've thought about it this way. Now, here's another perspective. And they go, hopefully they go, whoa, dude, no way. I was like, no way. Yeah, hey. way. Um, and if you can pull that off, then, you, then you've done something You've done something good. If you don't pull it off, then people just go, yeah, yeah you, failed, you failed miserably. But these are the risks you take. This is, it pays your money, it takes your chances. Right. So that one is done. Uh, I went to tour actually last Monday and had a high-level meeting with them about laying out the next few things that we have and I'm waiting for them to say whether or not there are basically three projects that we could move forward on um, and I'm waiting for them to tell me which, which ones one? yeah which one is going to be in the number one slot which was the number two slot and which one in the number three slot or 
chuck that one out. Assign the various deadlines and say right, now. Right, exactly. Gosh, get and if work. we get those done, then that means that I'm plotted out until like the mid-teens. And this is the dream spot for the paid author. Right, exactly. This is this is a high-class problem to have. It's like knowing what you're going to be doing until like 2016. Not a bad, not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, as, as speaking as an outsider looking in, I would think that that would be a cherished position for an author, because all indications are it is it is a bit of living hell to break into this industry. Oh yeah, no, it's it's one of those things that one and they they say actually, and this is ironic to someone who's trying to sell their first book, the hardest book you will ever sell is not your first book, it's your third. And what is the logic underlying that? The statement? reason for that is because by the time your third book rolls around, they have the sales of your first two books. Huh. So they and know they whether goals. so they know whether or not you're a successful author or not. So if you've sold the first book, then that's great. And you usually sell the second book because they will get you on a two book deal because you're cheap, right? But it's the third book that says, you know, yes, you've been successful enough that we think that you're actually going to have a career. Or no, we'll be this will be your yeah. last book with us. Have a nice day. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We we we've really enjoyed having you in our stable, but now it's time to go. So that is that is the crisis for everyone. And sometimes it's not the third book. Sometimes it's the fifth book. Sometimes it's the fourth book. You know, but it, it always it always is. It never stops being a struggle to sell your book. So to be able to say, you know, yes, I will. I know what I'm doing through 2016, and I will get paid through that far. You know, is actually a very nice thing as an author. Well, on a, on a different topic, one of the things I saw on your blog, and you want to tell people where they can find whatever? Uh, you, it's at whatever.scalzy.com, or just go to Google and type in the word whatever. You're that high on the I've, ranking. I've been, I've, it's been the whatever for 13 years. Does that give you just a warm, fuzzy feeling? It so very does. It's the, like I own, I own an actual word. It's not just like my name. Mm -hmm. It's whatever. I have a word from the Oxford English Dictionary that is associated with me and only me. So saith the God of Google. Exactly. It's a happy place. It is. On whatever, um, you've given some really good insight into managing finances as a working author. Sure. Without getting into you know, here's the specific numbers, but here are the percentages and here is advice on how to do this and not starve right. from a working author. Um, and I observed this on my regular internet show. That I thought that was a really wonderful thing for mm -hmm. someone who is in industry, whatever the industry may be, right. to do for aspiring people in that industry, in their case, authors, coming saying, this is what you need to prepare for. Yeah. Lean times and, mm. oh my God, plan ahead. Right. And have a plan and work that plan. Exactly. What was your inspiration to want to do that? Well, my very first book ever was a book of finance. It was a book on the rough guide to online finance. And so I spent a lot of time basically looking at how that did. I When I was doing corporate work, I had corporate clients. I did a lot of stuff with like U.S. Trust and Oppenheimer Funds and all that sort of stuff. So I have a experience in a finance background. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed when I became a professional writer or became a freelance professional writer is a lot of my fellow writers were living sort of hand-to-mouth you know, always so the, the on the next The vibe I got kick. off of your paragraphs was, okay, this is what we're defending against. Right, exactly. And one of the things is that on one sense, sometimes you don't have a choice on that. You know, sometimes the business is what the business is. Times are lean. Times are lean, and you have to you have to accept that. But the other thing is, is that 
other times, it's not that these people would be starving. It's just that they've made so many bad financial decisions that they kind of got themselves screwed up. I mean, maybe that's why it spoke to me so much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm well, only recently getting responsible about my finances, so right. it struck a chord. But it's things like it's things like credit cards, for example. You know, Evil. the people who people who don't realize that the credit card your credit card limit is not a suggested how much you should spend. Um, or the idea that you know you save for things rather than to you know than to buy them and then buy, pay them back on credit and stuff like that. There are a lot of simple things you can do to make your life a whole lot easier. And I, writers don't know that because a lot of writers simply never connected to finance. They yeah, know they they're get more about their art than right. about running a household. Right. And but the fact is is that when you are a writer, you're running a business. You're running a small business. It's a single. It's a sole proprietorship, and it's you. Um, you should need to do things to, to protect yourself to make sure that you know when the lean times come and they will come for every writer. It doesn't matter how successful you are. You know there's eventually a time where your income dips and you're making half of what you made before, or you're making you know a third of what you're making. Uh, that so that you're prepared. One of the things that I always tell people is you know don't take don't spend everything that you have. Learn to learn to economize. Learn that it's learn not to be always after the hot new thing that comes out and buy as well as you can buy the best thing that you can and run it into the ground I'll give you an example my my wife and I just bought a new car we bought a mini Cooper countryman which is their, their four-door all-wheel drive model and people are like dude that's a sweet car you know and I'm like it is but it is also a sweet car that's going to last us to 15 to 20 it's years made by BMW yeah exactly and the whole point of it the whole point of it is, is that we bought it because my wife's my wife's other car, which we bought 14 years ago, is finally dying. We took that car. It was a Suzuki Sidekick, which was the one, the best we could afford at the time. Mm -hmm. We got it. We ran it into the ground. I mean, we maintained it and we did everything we needed to do it. But you know, eventually, it ends. It's the end of its life. But we got our money. We got our thirteen thousand dollars out of that Many car. Many times and, over. And then some. Right. We're going to get the cost of that Mini Cooper. Right many times over because we will run it into the ground. You'll take good care of it. It will last. And right. There will be ROI involved. Exactly. And so, yeah. And But so people are like, wow, you spent a lot of money on that car. It's like, yes, we spent as well as we could. Yes. And then, and that's it. That's that car we, we have. We have invested in that car. We have invested in that it's car. It's going to do things for us. Right. And that's the thing to, to make people realize is that, you know, it's okay to spend money, but you have to realize that you looking at it in the long term. But you need to save money too. You need to prepare. You need to actually do all this sort of stuff. And it, the thing that I offer in this respect is credibility because you know I've been I've been in the business of a freelance writer for nearly 20 years now. Um, and so when I talk about this, I, I'm not just pulling it out of my back end. You have a body of work called your lack of bankruptcy, right? To refer to and say I think I have proof that I have been able to, right. to put, and put to be, together. And to be clear, in many ways I've been extraordinarily fortunate. But part of that being extraordinarily fortunate is preparation. Being ready for when the money comes in, you know, taking And when the opportunity arrives yeah. for whatever it may be. So, and you know, I think that if people don't know this and they're going to put themselves in bad positions and it's really easy as a writer to get yourself in a bad position so as much as i can talk to people about this i will i mean sometimes people get irritated with me it's like yes you're talking finance again could you please shut up i was like no because it's important it's important it's it really can make important. a big difference in someone's life i've i've seen a lot of my friends just really scrape by and and they don't make any you know at times they don't make any less than I do. It's just where that money goes. So, it's not, so yeah, not it's efficiently a, dealt with. It's important to me.
So you have the uh, science fiction writer hat. Yeah. You have the financial advisor hat. Yeah. Now you have the creative consultant hat that yes. you've been wearing of late. Uh, your name has been appearing on my television attached to a dearly departed uh, show. Sadly departed, yes. Well, we discussed this on our network quite a bit because I showed up for Stargate Universe mm -hmm. convinced and expecting to hate it. Right. Because I think, oh God, yet another network milking a franchise to death. Right. I'll watch it because it's my job uh -huh. to support genre shows. And I came out the other end of the first episode going, well, what the hell was that? Right. That wasn't at all. Was I, uh, well, it was good, for one thing. And it was completely different to its predecessors while maintaining enough connective tissue to right. be a direct continuation. Mm -hmm. So, of course, in the back of my mind was the glancing. So this means it's definitely getting canceled. Right. Um, but renewed for a second season. So right. There's hope. Right. And sadly, did not survive the cut the second time around. Thanks sadly Thanks to not. the wonderfully outdated Nielsen system. Hmm. But your experience as creative consultant for Stargate Universe. Yeah. Is this your first time wearing this particular hat, or have you done this before? Uh, no, it was the first time. And what brought this opportunity into your orbit? Uh, uh, Joe Malazzi, who is a producer uh, Stargate Atlantis, had read some of my uh, books and really enjoyed them and sent me an email going, would you like to write for us on Stargate Atlantis? And I hadn't really watched enough of Stargate Atlantis, and I'm very aware of, you know, there are many opportunities for me to be incompetent, and I don't want to take them. Good. And this was one of them where we I was thank like, you. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Where I was very much of, thank you for the offer. I'm really flattered, but I would be not the right person for that. And he says, well, we're thinking at some point or another to have another show, um, and that would be sort of ground up. And if we do that, would you be inter more interested? Interested. And I would say, absolutely. And then I didn't hear from him for a year because, you know, the glacial pace of development. Right. and But then he calls up, or then he sends me an email and says, it's on. Would you like in? And I'm like, sure. So they had me, you know, they had, we came and we had talks and I flew out and I talked to Brad and, you know, the other folks involved. And the role that I seemed best for me was creative consultant, which would be, they would send me their scripts. I would look at them for science and characters and story and see what works and what doesn't and uh, send them back notes. And... Um, it worked like it worked very well because there's a combination of things. I mean, they 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 have really good writers, but they're not necessarily always 100% versed on science. So you want to make sure that they get the science that we already know correct, and you want to offer them suggestions about what they can do to make what they want to happen dramatically be achievable without completely throwing out, you know, physics, for example. Well, it seems to, at least from the viewer's standpoint that they really dialed back the techno babble and dialed back the technology of the week that had kind of become rampant in the Stargate writing up until the beginning of Universe. Right. Where they kind of rested on their laurels of, okay, okay, wormholes, we got those. Yeah, yeah. We have this magic technology that lets us communicate across galaxies instantaneously right. and exchange consciousnesses. Right. Okay, that makes for some very interesting storytelling. Right. And that's and we have introduced this twist of non-hyperspace, faster-than-light travel, sure. which has not been in this universe before. Right. And scene. No real new wacky twists, 
came out during the run of the show. Well, I think they wanted to have a slightly different perspective on the Stargate universe. They 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 were locked in with the technology that they already had. It had to be it's, it's canon. You right. had to accept that it was it, there. Nope, doesn't work anymore. Right, exactly. Um, but they didn't want it. They wanted it to be about the characters and not about the technology. They wanted it to have an ongoing story and not just be completely episodic. Even though they wanted to tell a complete story in each episode, right. um, and so that and, and that locked them in. And they also wanted to basically be, like I said. They wanted to do what they wanted to do dramatically, but they also wanted to have something that uh, seemed reasonable. That somebody who was watching it who was a super nerd wouldn't go, ah, wait a minute, that's just not right. Like episode 27 of exactly. SG-1, they directly... My job is to rob that guy. Right. Uh, of his of opportunity. His, of his joy. Right, exactly. Good. And and We and need I, more people like you. Right, and I agree with that entirely. But, uh, so, but it was really good. I mean, the, thing, the way I explained it to people is my job is to get you through... The entire 60 minutes without you saying, wait a huh? minute. Yeah, exactly. If we get you through the entire show before you say, no, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. It's too late. We're already done with the show. You've already we, bought it. You already bought it. Um, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, my job is not to make everything absolutely scientifically accurate. It's to make it plausible. To make Take it, what we do know, make an intuitive leap and say... We think this could happen. Right, exactly. And, and, I think that that's, and I think that's reasonable because, as I'm fond of saying, science fiction, there are two words in that phrase, and one of them is fiction. You get to, you get to Let's speculate. Let's not forget that. Yeah, you get to speculate. You get to have fun. But the, you know, the other thing is, is that the other thing that I did with them is not just with the science, but with the, with the characters, you know, keep track of which characters and their arcs. And also I did very nitpicky things. Like the, they would have this uh, scene where they say, red shirt walks down the hall, right? And uh, and I had to remind them, you don't have red shirts. You only have like sixty to eighty people on You're the a ship. Finite resource of characters. Right. And that's part of the fun of this show. Is yeah, you, bottle. It's a bottle e show. Every every yeah, every bullet you use is a bullet you don't get back. Yeah. You know. And so uh, and I had to be that that sort of nitpicky. So one of the things I'm very proud of is if you look at the entire run of Stargate, people do die, but mostly they get maimed. Right. Yeah. And that's me. You know. The, the other way that I explain things is that if I have done my job as creative consultant, you, the, the viewer, don't see anything that I've done. Because that's not... You're the in invisible hand of the market. Yeah, you don't, you don't see what I do. All you see is that you've enjoyed that particular you, You've enjoyed that particular And it had chapter. internal logic that nobody violated for the right. sake of... But there are, things that, there are things that I notice. I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm proudest of is that I was like on the third episode when they dive into the sun to right. recharge... The reason that that sun is a red dwarf is because I told them, don't make it, don't make that star too big, right? Because you won't be able to call, call, cover all the distances you want to cover at the speed you need to go in order to do these other things. So if we make it a red dwarf, make the planets really close in, it'll be great. And so they did that, and um, like I said, every time I see that red dwarf, that's like that Scalzi star. That's right. That is your touch all over it. Right. Exactly. They actually used it as a a story point, a plot point late in the series where they had to go try to use a giant and right. had all kinds of issues and say, hey, that makes total sense. Right. It's it, outside the design specification and they're pushing their luck. Exactly. It's like stuff that you can correct them so it makes sense and then it becomes part of canon and, and, you, and you win. Yeah, it makes, and it makes for fun storytelling. Exactly. Awesome. Um, is creative consulting something you're seeking to do ongoing or just kind of fell in your lap this time and if it happens to come your way you'll go for it again i kind of i kind of work that way my core job is writing novels and uh i like that job there are other opportunities that, that come up because i write novels that people like you know the that was one of them i've had other stuff i can't unfortunately talk about because i'm under ndas but they were cool too um 
these things fall into your lap and you're like, yes, I want to do that because they expand your competencies. Mm -hmm. um, and I take advantage of them when they happen. Uh, but mostly I'm writing, I'm writing books. If, someone, if another TV show came to me and said, we would love for you to be a creative consultant, if it was the same sort of deal, uh, I would definitely do it again. Particularly I've, since I enjoyed working with uh, Brad and Joe and, and, and uh, Robert, uh, I would do another Stargate thing if it ever came up again. But you know, these things come and go, and you take advantage of them when you can. Well, I mean, these, are, these professionals will go on and do more work and you are now in their Rolodex, so right, exactly. we, can, we can hope to see uh, your hand on things again. Yeah, the, the, the greatest thing you can do is actually do the job that they ask you to do and do it well. well. Speaking as a viewer, I enjoyed it a very great deal and look for more like that in the future. Great, thank you. Uh, keep us posted on whatever and we'll keep an eye on whatever you're allowed to talk about that you work on in the future. Excellent. Um, my gateway drug into your universe was the Old Man's War series. Right. Where does that sit in your publishing fiction hierarchy was that what, early work recent work the original old man's war it was the second novel i ever wrote okay. um and it was the first novel that i was ever published with and it came out in 2005 which is the weird thing that i tell people it's like i've actually only been publishing now in science fiction for six years um so it seems like it should be longer uh, but as far as it goes that series has gone from the first book was published in 2005 the last book in that series was published in 2008 um, people ask me you know will you be coming back to it because it is my most successful series and my answer to that is I would love to but I one thing I'm absolutely adamant about is that I don't become one of those authors who's like chapter seven in the old man's war series because you're grinding it out you're not grinding naming it out. any Piers Anthony names or anything like no, that no. well I have nothing against Piers Anthony but you know his gig is his gig yeah and, and he is absolutely a novel writing machine right um, they just get kind of samey after a while, and I'm glad to hear that you're not just going to make some more samey right. until you're ready to make something that's right. a now continuation. You, yeah, exactly. I know that people want me to go back in that universe, and I kind of want to go back in that universe, but when I go back into that universe, I want to give people value. I want them to be excited, and as much as I want them to be excited, I want me to be excited as well, because if I'm bored, you can tell it. In my writing, you can absolutely tell. It, it can't help but transmit. Right, actually, you know, and I so and I, you know, frankly, I don't need the money that much. I mean, I don't need to. I don't need to be paid to grind it out. You know, my finances are thanks to the previous. Good planning. Good planning. Uh, I I'm not starving, and so I have the ability to do other things, and I have the ability to say I'm not ready to do this. But when I'm ready for it, it'll be cool. So when the schedule and the muse are in alignment, we may see something more. In yeah, that you may see something more, and if we do something, we, you know, we want to make sure that. It, it's an event and that people know about it. And so if I come back to the Old Man's War universe, definitely people will know about it. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll be watching for it. Okay. The original book, uh, was it a deliberate love letter to Heinlein? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because it, um, it came to me without you know, being a ripoff. It was like definitely this man read the same book I did and loved it as much as I did. It was very consciously in its structure patterned after Starship Troopers. Because one, as a newer writer, that was an easy structure to emulate. But second of all, um, I love me some Heinlein. You know, what's not to love? Yeah, he's a great writer. He uh, is he's foundational to the genre, particularly uh, as an American science fiction writer. All this stuff is stuff we love. And so I wasn't seeing at the time I was writing it that much of it. We had military science fiction, obviously, and it was doing reasonably well. Um, but the specifically kind of Heinleinian slash Campbellian sort of flavor of mm -hmm. it 
was not one that I was seeing a lot of. And it's entirely possible to be clear that I was just reading the wrong things because people would come out of the woodwork, you should have been reading this and you should have been reading that. I am one man. Yeah, fair enough, <laughs> I understand. But for what I was seeing, I wasn't seeing a lot of that. And I was like, well, I like that. And uh, the, there's a dictum, you know, you should write what you want to read, you know, because that's going to be satisfying to you. Um, and so I wanted to read some more in that sort of vein of things. And so I wrote some. The one of the, from my perspective as a reader, one of the entertaining things was the the building feeling throughout the series that humanity, at least in the form of the colonial union, not necessarily the nicest guys. Right. I shouldn't be yay has a has a humanity just because you share a genome. Yeah, exactly. You know, humanity. Yeah, yeah. And that was the thing in the first book. You don't get too much of it simply because it's from a grunt level point of view. You don't get to see high-level discussions. No, and but the further you go along in it, you realize that you know these are are, not, are these really good decisions. Yeah, are these really good decisions? Are these decisions that are made by people who are having, you know, that are doing anything other than completely bald real politic? Um, and so that was kind of interesting to write, and because it was also very interesting for people to apprehend after a while. One of the criticisms that I got from the left actually quite a bit was it's a right-wing racist universe and, is it and it's it's a very authoritarian universe and it is set up so that first world countries are the military and they have all the guns and the third world countries are the colonists are the colonists and they you know build the you know build the structure um, so if you think that that sort of setup is racist then yes it's definitely racist um, but the thing is is that does that mean for example I'm racist is no the answer is I am building a, I'm building a particular structure to this government that, in one sense, makes very good sense for that government to be. But it does not necessarily mean that it is a good or desirable government. It is open to question. It is open to debate. Um, and so, yes, it was intentionally designed so that as you go along, you're like, mm, I don't know about yeah, this. Should they really? Shouldn't we be helping? And these I think guys? that that's that's the way that's the way you want to have it because you know. It you makes know, you think. I'm happy to be an American, but I don't always agree, you know, with what the American government does. And it doesn't matter which party is in power. Um, sometimes, you know, even the guy you voted for does things to you go, you know what, I wouldn't have, you know, that would not be something I would have wanted you oh, to do. There's a saying that goes, I love my country, I dislike my government. Yeah, sometimes you dislike it, sometimes, or sometimes it does, you like some of the things it does and you don't like some of the other things it does. Sometimes circumstances make it necessary for it to do some things that you don't approve of, or does it, again, you go around and around and around. The idea that you know a human government of any sort would always do things that were ethical or right or correct, or that wouldn't have, you know, uh, extraordinarily negative repercussions ten or twelve steps down the line—it's it's folly. We are dealing with humans. This is the way humans are. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Right. It's like, oops, we won. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and and that's exactly it. And and I, as much as you know. Books are Potemkin villages. They're, you know, just, you know, that one lane and we're pulling you through that lane. But even as much as you, that, that's the case, you want to have that sort of ambiguity. You want to have that stuff that people can think about once they've sat down the book. Well, there's authors fall into categories of world builders. And I think you are a world builder in that you have, you give us enough tantalizing bits about other things that are going on that make us think that this is a place where we would like to play. Right, exactly. So in, in the old man's world, in Old Man's War universe that you've succeeded in doing that, which is probably why you get so many requests for it. more, please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, of course, you know, there's lots of action and humor and things there's exploding action, and lasers and aliens and 
all that sort of stuff because I'm a big believer in, you know, shoveling that stuff on. I, I'm unapologetically a, a, a commercial writer, but I don't think being commercial means that you have to be brain dead. And this is where, you know, a lot of people, I think, fall down on the commercial thing. Well, one of the fun uh, mechanisms in your story, when you got to telling the stories of the special forces. Yeah. And you approached the concept of how exactly would you deal with a constructed person? Right. A brain that was built to order by the brain pal. Right. And I, I love the mechanism of the, okay, we're going to spoon feed you answers to factual questions inside your own head yeah. as you demand them. And that's going to slowly build a person. Right. And it explained retroactively why the personalities of all these special forces we had met up to that point were as off as they were. Yeah. Because these aren't these aren't people people, these are made people. Right. And you have to and you have to actually ask your, your those those questions when you're when you're world building building because in fact if you are building people who are like four years old but fully cognizant adults and they have, you know, a Something An incredibly in powerful reference computer yeah. in their head. You're gonna, you're basically gonna have very uh, people who are emotionally very messed up. Mm -hmm. You know, they're gonna be very abrupt. They're gonna be very impatient. They are going to have cognitive gaps, and they are going to be led down a particular path because that's their conditioning. Um, and it makes it makes perfect sense if you think about it, but you have to think about it. Yeah, yeah. And made for some very fun storytelling. Absolutely. Well, thank that, you. That. Thank you so much. As dry as it would appear to be, the way it was told, it's like, hey, this was a lot of fun, and that, well, that gets and, your brain and, going. And that's the whole thing is, is that you can you can provide all that sort of information, but if you don't if you don't provide it in a way that people want to read it, that just sort of eats it up, and it's in a natural sort of context. If you're just exposition, 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 info dump, kunk, um, you're gonna lose techno babble. Yeah, and it's I'm a long not tradition. I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of techno babble. I'm I I am a believer in telling people what they need to know in order to make it plausible, but you leaving as much open to so that people can speculate in their own brains. Was it a deliberate uh, choice to give us almost no descriptions of the alien races? Yes, absolutely. I be found that to be very enjoyable. Because yeah, exactly. Because you're going to do a much better job explaining what these aliens look like to you in your head than I will. I mean, there are times when I need to explain to you what they look like because it serves a plot purpose. Yes. Um, so, Kansu have slicing arms because they need to be intimidating as hell. Right, right, right. That's a perfect example. Um, but also, it's not just the aliens. Um, John Perry. What does he look like? What does he look like? Now he's got his, his new non-green body. Uh -oh. Right. Exactly, or Jane Sagan, or yeah. in, in the other books, Harry Creek, you know, from Android Stream. I don't do a lot of description unless it's relevant because I want it to be able to basically let people pour themselves into that. And sometimes that works and sometimes it, it doesn't. There's a lot of side discussion uh, in science fiction circles about whether or not you should specify what people look like for the reasons of if you don't, then uh, everybody defaults to white, which is a, actually a reasonably good argument, but at the same time, you, you figure how you how do I balance these real world issues with right. the fact that I, I want people to activate their own imaginations. Well, at the same time, you occasionally will drop a description. I think in Zoe's tale, you mentioned Oban crossbreed between a giraffe and a tarantula. Yeah, I can't unsee that in my mind now. And it creeps you out, doesn't it? It's creepy, but it's more of a plush toy. My brain has gone to plush toy land, and the Oban are not intimidated to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they will be when they come to you with knives. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, I, I was just listening to Max Brooks talking about why zombies freak him out, and now zombies freak me out. Right, exactly. 
Okay, I don't want to eat all of your... I could go on for a day or two here. Right, right, right. You have a con- convention to attend here. So I'm going to get all James Lipton on your ass now. Okay. And I'm going to hit you with the questionnaire. All right. Which begins thusly, what is your favorite word? My favorite word? Favorite word. Check. What is your least favorite word? Uh, anthracite. What is your favorite sound or noise? My wife's voice. What is your least favorite sound or noise? Oh, the cat at 3 a.m. What is your favorite curse word? It's a long, stretched out phrase. Fine. Goddamn motherfucking shit. That's almost with one transposition, not the first time we've heard that on this show. <laughs> Jonathan Colton. Um, what profession other than any of the ones you have partaken of thus far would you like to attempt? History teacher. What profession would you absolutely not want to be involved with? Food service. And finally, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I liked your books. Mr. Scalzi, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Thank you. You have been listening to an episode of Alpha Geek Interviews live, uh, not live, pre-recorded live on Versus the World Radio, vtwproductions.com. Check us out on the web. Click on the Shows tab at the top of the page. You will be glad that you did. I have been Gnomewise. That has been John Scalzi. And we are out of here. I am Gnomewise. I am Gonora. I am Iolite. I am Dexa. I am Grail. And I am versus you. I am versus you. And I'm versus you. I am versus you. And I'm versus you. Casually Hardcore. Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. GMT. Only on vtwproductions.com.